I think fintech will eventually be the driving force on how we solve for challenges that we've faced, not only in just inclusivity, but also in sustainability. Welcome to the Next Gen Banker podcast, where we explore what's next in banking and talk with the innovators responsible for creating positive change in the financial sector. I'm your host, Becca Heft, and I am joined by my Sunrise colleague and friend, Brian Toft. And I am very excited to welcome Sarah Biller today. Sarah, thank you for being on the Next Gen Banker podcast. Becca and Brian, I couldn't think of a better way to spend an afternoon. Thank you. And even a Monday afternoon, too. It is. It is. Well, before we get started, it's just a reminder to stick around to hear our musical feature at the end of the episode. Each Next Gen Banker episode showcases one new artist from somewhere around the globe, representing a wide range of different genres. So be sure to check it out. Now let's give some background on Sarah. Sarah is the executive director of Vantage Ventures, a venture capital firm located in West Virginia. She is also a board member at a multitude of organizations, including ThreadBank, FinTech Sandbox, KALYP Technologies, Rialto Markets, and Core10. Sarah is an advisor for Candidly and the Mass Challenge FinTech Lab and an adjunct professor at Brandeis University. So, great, Sarah, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. And uh, you bring more than two decades of experience across finance and tech. And you even spent some time in healthcare, it appears. So we would love to hear your story. So did you always think you would end up in finance? Uh, Please tell us your background and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, Brian, thank you. I wish we had more than the time we do to talk about um, what the importance of nonlinear backgrounds and, yeah. and how connecting those dots has really paid off in, in these last two decades of work I've done in financial services. Um, but I do have um, had the benefit of working in multiple industries in telecom, you mentioned in life sciences, before really reaching my true passion, which is fintech. And seeing the power of what we can do um, when we motivate capital, when we organize technology to enable, uh, you know, non right now people who are underserved to come into the banking system, support small businesses, all the way through to large capital allocators and helping them better understand how they, um, what impact they can have on day-to-day lives of people. So here at Sunrise, we talk a little bit about that in that we talk about fintech for good. So what can fintech do to help those underrepresented communities? Do you have a favorite story you can share or a favorite fintech or product that you've seen the most progress in helping these communities? Yeah, Becca, you know, one of the areas that I'm particularly passionate about is the intersection of, of capital markets at its highest level and, and Main Street and how you build those bridges. So one of my favorite stories and entrepreneurs is a woman named Sherry Noonan. Um, she's from the Midwest. Uh, she came to New York, like a lot of financial services professionals, made her way through the, uh, the big banks, um, Goldman, Oppenheimer, and turned her capabilities and her attention to actually supporting uh, the movement of capital to private companies to companies that actually would enable 
individuals who had a passion, whether it was around putting, you know, just a thousand dollars against an environmentally friendly, call it electric vehicle and the next generation all the way through um, to, to small businesses, like a better way to deliver anesthesia if, if you're afraid of the doctor that um, we see today as hard to fund in our traditional channels of venture capital. She saw an avenue to enabling the everyday individual one to participate in an asset class that has historically been the purview of, of the high net worth individuals, but two, enabling us as a first person to invest with our passion and with our social values. And so her company, Rialto, today um, is in partnership with a company, for one example, um, that's out of Texas Pacific Group called Rubicon. And they're actually creating a liquid environment for the um, buying and selling of carbon credits mm. and enabling us. And so I love this trajectory that we're on, that we're able to motivate capital into small value-based businesses that have the potential to grow, that lift up the economic outcome for individuals, as well as enable us to, again, support our, um, our value system. That in no way displaces, by the way, the role of our community banks, those institutions that sit on Main Street that are every day the engine of growth for the economy for the U.S., which means in many ways, if you extrapolate that up to its highest level, the engine of growth for the world's economy. Wow, that's that's outstanding. Um and I, I remember when I was prepping for this episode, I was reading some things that you had written and then I actually you know, saw you speak at Money 2020 most recently a few months ago. Um, and you talked about how fintech will play a role in mitigating the effects of climate change. So you told me a little bit about that with Rialto. Can you talk more about the statement and what you see as a potential from a fintech side, but also if you have an opinion about how community community banks can get involved? Yeah, well, I'll start with sort of how we met, Becca, which is that story of money 2020. Um, and we have to, I think we all, I want to pause it with you all that for the last um, actually, I'm going to go back a little bit from my work at Brandeis at the university. Let's just start here. FinTech is not new. It's a 2,000-year-old category. FinTech, and in my case, my love of the credit markets, shows up no less than 10 times in the Old Testament. How do you administer credit? How do you talk about sort of exchange of value? All the way through to today. And what we see is in our modern conception of using the modern tools of today, technology to meet financial services, there are multiple companies coming on board, for instance, that are allowing communities, small towns, just like my hometown in West Virginia, begin to create more transparency into their financial security. And, or excuse me, their financial returns, their tax base. Mm -hmm. um, and and develop a much more efficient way to tap the municipal markets for the investment in, for instance, like solar community driven solar projects where they can go and build out utility grade solar arrays to help manage. Right now, we do have a pretty, you know, we have some pretty much strong weaknesses on our grid. 
-hmm. augment it with these renewable returns using municipal tax dollars to reduce the cost of energy and strengthen the grid in their own communities. The muni bond market is is an amazing source of capital, but you have to know how to tap it. You have to know how to reduce your cost of capital and create transparency. And we have a number of fintechs, for instance, in my the not-for-profit that Brian mentioned that I'm the co-founder of Fintech Sandbox, that we're providing them that data to, to test that thesis and that hypothesis. And so I, I started with this idea that, fin, that fintech as a category is thousands of years old. And it has long been its own industry. It's been in financial services. It's sought to improve the exchange of funds. But I think what I would, I believe we're all seeing is that fintech is beginning to embed itself is the word that's often used, Mm -hmm. but influence the outcomes in adjacent industries, whether it's what the example I just gave you of helping, you know, an age old municipal bond um, offering actually tap out because you're looking to put a green investment to play. Fintech is showing up in, in the way that healthcare is paid for but also increasingly we're seeing companies like Royalty Pharma use the discipline of financial services and technology to introduce products that mimic a traditional option, for example, in the financial markets to help more directly bring capital into the discovery of drugs and development. That's a sea change from how we've actually tried to advance research in advanced care. And so I would tell you that FinTech has a place in, in we're seeing it happen in adjacent industries. And a lot of those are trying to do good. Make mm-hmm. sure the climate change is addressed, that we actually, in my case, very interested in closing the urban rural divide in digital health care and the advancement of using capital to further our drug discovery in key areas. It's certainly happening in transportation. And so I think FinTech is will eventually be the driving force on how we solve for challenges that we've faced, not only in just inclusivity, but also in sustainability. Yeah, it seems like you've had a history of unlocking capital for you know improving social and financial wellness. And that seems to be the case with FinTech Sandbox. I'd love to hear more about FinTech Sandbox. My understanding is it's a nonprofit. And you yeah. open up data and APIs and things for fintechs that want to go in and test things and try things. Tell me more about that. I'm I'm curious. Yeah, Brian, isn't that a nutty idea to have a not-for-profit <laughs> Yes, I love it. Yeah, so I give all the credit to my co-founder, David Jagan, for um, the managing director at F-Prime Capital, a really fantastic fintech venture firm um, based in Boston, for envisioning this idea that um, in the kind of 2012-2014 timeframe, um, you know, innovation, though I've argued it's longstanding, it was quite nascent in this cycle, right? We had new tools that we could put in place. We were just operating in the wake of the credit crisis. And so you had all of these innovators coming on board saying, we can do this better. The credit crisis opened up and showed us there was a fracturing in the way that we had actually done financial services from payments, from lending, from institutional and retail investing, you name it. But what was the stall point? And I confronted this in my own company, um, which was a predictive analytics platform for institutional bond investors trying to identify and price emerging risks that were Mm non-financial. Today, we call those ESG. Mm -hmm. Back then, we didn't really know what to call them. (laughs) But anyway, long and short... 
the, the challenge that stood in our way and in my way, and then that of other fintech entrepreneurs during that time was access to data. And David was astute enough in his understanding across his portfolio of companies to see that this was a true stall point if we didn't find a way to, one, work with the large data providers to actually make the procurement process more efficient, more easy to navigate as a single um, as a single operator. You can imagine, just take a Bloomberg uh, sales guy for a minute. Does he want to spend his time selling 25 terminals or does he want to spend his time selling one? We know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. It's also pretty costly to get data, right? And so FinTech Sandbox, our origin story was, is that there was a future market. There, there was a need for data-driven solutions, putting data in the hands of entrepreneurs who were envisioning the future of financial services differently. And that the data providers could actually see a pathway to new applications for their data, new uses, and of course, new distribution channels. And so... Um, we came up with the idea that we would approach the big data providers and they would provide data for free for six months. And we would work with our financial institution partners who were beginning to have an appetite for innovation to be able to be on the front page or front lines of where change was happening. Remember artificial intelligence as as an application today, it's ubiquitous. A decade ago, it was just in its infancy. Mm -hmm. You needed data to train those models. So we provided everyone a frontline view. And Brian, as crazy as it sounds, we said we want to give it away for free. We don't charge the entrepreneurs. We don't want to take equity. We just want to advance innovation. And Becca, your words, for good. We want to see what's happening for good. And it's worked. Today, we work, we've worked with over 250 startups. They sit on all continents but Antarctica, so I'm making an official call for an Antarctica fintech to come. <laughs> <laughs> but, we, you know, but really, that's the, the way that we will advance innovation, I still hold it true today, is that we, we put data in the hands of individuals who can do something with it. Chat GPT, the next generation, <laughs> good, bad, we're not sure, (laughs) is being trained on unstructured data sets. We must put data in the hands of individuals who can affect great change with it, or or we will stall. And so that, Brian, was our thesis. It's worked. Um, We could dive a little bit deeper into startups if you wanted, but it's it's been one of the most rewarding acts of my life, which was to give to others something that I had such a problem getting myself. I highly encourage listeners to check it out. Fintech Sandbox is it's unique. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And to, to be a nonprofit in that space and then give it away for free is is amazing. So people that aren't aware of it should definitely check it out. Um, speaking of innovation, I want to move to an article you wrote about the metaverse. Uh, very interesting article. I had a chance to read it. Becca did as well, I know. And you had said in that article, you compared the metaverse to um, what the Renaissance did for math, science, and art, and that fintech might be a way to get there and, and, and that kind of change. So fintech is rapidly changing, it's growing. And I was just curious, you know, you've got Facebook changing its name to meta, making a big investment in it, and then there's, you know, 
you know, detractors that feel like it's flopping a little bit and that kind of stuff. I'm just curious, do you still feel the same way as you did when you wrote that article? And um, how do you think the metaverse uh, fits in today to that landscape of fintech? Yeah, I, I have not gone away from my the, the point that I made, that the metaverse opens an aperture of opportunity, not unlike when we, um, during the Renaissance times, understood perspective in more than just a two-plane dimension. Um, if anyone has studied how the Duomo, uh, the, in, uh, not Milan, in Florence, the Duomo, the mm. um, dome was built, you understand it wouldn't have been done if we hadn't understood from a framing perspective that a dome had, it actually had six dimensions required for the architecture. It could not be done on a two-part plane. That is the case with financial services today. What we don't have is two things. We don't have a we don't have a multi-dimensional environment in which to understand that it's just finance does more than just have volumes of trade, variety of instruments, yeah. and individual perspective. Right? It, there's a lot of other dimensions. So I really think as we step into the metaverse and we begin to explore the dimensionality of of banking in different ways, of the delivery of products and services not like you're an avatar, but like understanding that there's probably 15 to 16 different dimensions that can be measured there and acted upon to improve, well, decrease, let's just take this away, decrease the friction that exists in our transactions today, improve our ability to overcome the hurdles that exist from digital identity to awareness of, of actions, both good and bad, that happen on, by counterparties in the transaction. I don't think in any way the an anonymity, as an example, that um, exists in certain segments of financial services is going to help us build a more inclusive financial system. We need to really think on a multidimensional way about how we're going to prove identity. So, yeah, I still stand by the idea that the metaverse, um, it has some ways to go. I'm, I'm interested that our first movers here are the actually the it's the retail sector as opposed to financial services. Historically, it's been the other way around. Um, but I mean, I can I can right now walk into three floors in the metaverse and see Fidelity and see my smart cash account. Right. And so I think that there's a there's but that's a retail perspective. I'm institutional yeah. in, in, mm. interested in how the institutions are using it. But, yeah, I think, you know, I took I actually took a lot of flack for that article. <laughs> I, I think it was really interesting. And, you know, I've been following the metaverse for quite some time. And what I've seen, to your point, is I've seen retail out there and I've seen entertainment out there. So I can be, you know, sit on Netflix, go out Netflix and sit on the couch with my daughter who's across the country and watch a movie together. So I think for our audience who are bankers, who are fin fintechs, um, who maybe are not as familiar with the metaverse, could you help me, Sarah, in painting a picture on some like practical application of what it possibly could look like in 10 years. Do you see financial literacy being out there? We see these transactions. What else would, how else would you paint that picture 10 years from now of what the metaverse could mean for financial institutions and fintechs? Yeah, I think if we just, Beck, if we, we could go across each category 
again, you know, fintech itself is comprised of of segments. So in in payments, the metaverse is very obvious. It's it's a, it is a rail. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, we both shared retail. You can go in now. You can go into Dolce and try on a five thousand dollar dress, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and decide to buy it once you see what it looks like on your body shape. I mean, that's that is that is the application of a payments rail sitting behind the metaverse that enables you not never to leave your home, but still yet have confidence in a high end purchase. Um, lending. So you know, for me, fintech is payments lending. I started to rattle that on mm-hmm. lending. I, I think one interesting example might be in the in the prop tech space in real estate as an asset class you no longer have to walk into a home or walk into an apartment physically to understand i could envision in 10 years in the metaverse you have the ability to actually go through these physical attributes make a very significant purchase or commit to a home if you're moving from california to boston as an example without with confidence. So the metaverse enables you to walk through real estate. You, If you're buying the home, you could negotiate without being there. You could talk about lending and insurance and you could overlay at that point, let's just go back to climate change for, change for a minute. If you're buying a home on the coast, you could overlay with your purchase, the understanding of NOAA related data of where you are in the flood map, where, mm-hmm. So, right, so you begin to have a, a risking, you intersect that conversation with insurance off the bat. You understand if you can insure. So you so I see meta, you know, the metaverse being a vehicle in which again we look at the multidimensional sets of data that right now are very disparate in our transaction lives. Um, and that is one of the most critical aspects of the metaverse for me is again, I keep siloing things, but they become immersive. Mm-hmm. And in the metaverse, critically, they become immersive in a digital framework, which actually lets you act, be a better actor in the physical world. So the mm-hmm. two the, the two are not, I don't see people sitting in their home, hopefully, um, for hours on end in the metaverse. I see them, in our case, in financial services, using it as a tool to have a better overlay of data and understanding to improve their financial lives. And financial literacy could absolutely come into play. Imagine in the metaverse, you you needed to understand financial literacy, but someone told you you need a $10,000 Viking stove in your kitchen. I'm going to see that Viking stove and I'm going to see what it's going to increase the cost Mm -hmm. of my mortgages real time, or I'm going to switch it out. So there's a, do you know what I mean? So you can begin to see again, layers and layers of data that today it's hard for us to connect those dots in financial services and then collect the data on the other side. So we improve the experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, like chat GPT where, you know, you, you Google something, you get a list of articles, but you type it in chat GPT and you get a conglomeration of all those articles together and the best information, you know, at least at it this point. It does the work for you. Yeah. And this is the worst it's ever going to be. It's only going to get better from here. So it's fascinating to, to see that. Yeah, Same with the metaverse. Yeah. I mean, what we, I just said this with the FinTech Sandbox team, we were talking about sort of our thought leadership and where we're going. And I'm like, a year ago, 
we believe we didn't know we were going to hit this future point. Like the future, the, as you said, yeah. Brian, the future, it's now. Right. And it is really, it is fascinating um, to see. I will say this, I'll underscore chat GPT is super interesting because again, it's a, it's a connective tissue capability. It's pulling lots of disparate information into a narrative mm-hmm. that otherwise we might not really ourselves understand. And that's that is so true in our financial lives. And it's particularly true in the financial lives of individuals who haven't had the same level of understanding or rigor. Money means different things to different people. And so how do we use this tool, by the way, for the benefit? There's a lot of challenge, I still I think, still sitting out there with these tools, but um, it's up to us to innovate against them for good. You're right. You're right. And um, I know Brad Smith, Microsoft CEO, wrote that book, Tools and Weapons. And he just talks, mm-hmm. chat GPT, of course, was not out yet. And this was pre-pandemic. But um, the whole idea that we have a responsibility as organizations to use this technology for good and make sure that the weapons are not um, built. And so in putting in those um safeguards for that. Yeah. And I think, Becca, we have we have strived as a financial services institution. Um, I think you, you obviously to do that, obviously there's out there's there's situations where it's not, but even our regulatory construct, we're so far behind in our regulation and our thoughtfulness about what are the guardrails, how do you put in place transparency? Um, it's it, we are we the opportunity for fintech entrepreneurs he, mm-hmm. across the entire spectrum has never been greater, particularly if you want to do something good. This has been a fascinating conversation. It's clear you're a visionary and have a perspective that's everything from you know venture capital CEO investing in fintechs, among other companies, the nonprofit co-founding, the board member of a bank. You're seeing all aspects of the financial services arena. And so I'm excited to ask this last question. It's the question we ask every guest. And that is, what do you think the next-gen banker looks like? Oh, gosh. You know, um, I, it's such a it's such a, an important moment in time. I think the next gen banker understands if we're just talking about North. I'm just going to talk about the United States for a minute. Yeah. The next gen banker understands their role in building community where that community is. So. As a small town girl, admittedly, <laughs> the the community bank served a very local region. Today, community banking has the opportunity through fintech to serve a multitude of entities. In our bank, one opportunity, as an example, we have is to support the needs of an entity that is helping youth sports leagues have work, those startup working capital they need every season, whether it's to buy the baseball gloves, the uniforms, transport that over to basketball. That community exists across the United States. It is a fabric of every small town. When you go out and you see those Friday night lights on, somebody has put some money ahead of that. Our community bank of the future, our next gen, 
the definition of community is evolving as the rap with the rapid nature of technology. And I think we need to remember that we have a responsibility to meet people where they are and serve them, whether they're on your main street, which I hope we're all doing, it's critical, but it's also across the country. And so that's my definition of next, what the next generation banker looks like. Well, Sarah, it has been such a treat to have you on Next Gen Banker. Thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts and insights with Brian and I today. We really appreciate it. And to all of our listeners, thanks for listening to the Next Gen Banker podcast, and we'll see you next time. For this episode's musical feature, we're showcasing Ghost. Ghost is an alternative rock project by artist Jesse Villa. Ghost released its Just For Kicks single in October of 2021. Here is Just For Kicks by Ghost. Kicks by Ghost. You can find more of Ghost music on Spotify. If you would like your music featured on the Next Gen Baker podcast, email david at nextgen-banker.com with a link to your music and website. Thanks for listening to the Next Gen Baker podcast. We'll see you soon.